Hey guys, welcome to Fintech Insider Interviews. I'm your host, David Breer, and today I'm joined by Steve Barlett, who is the CEO of Social Chain. Uh, we're going to do something a little bit different today, but Steve, how's it going? Nice. Uh, great to be here. Really great to be here. and a big fan of the podcast, so... Yeah, thanks for having me on. No worries. Um, we'll, we'll get into a little bit more about social chain in a little while, but mm-hmm. tell me a little bit more about your background. Other than sort of working nocturnally and uh, like suffering from jet lag right now, then uh, what what uh, what got you to here? Um, so I think I think I am a naturally a bit of a what's the word? Bit of like a rebel when it comes to rules and systems and the way things have been done in conventions. So I think I was expelled from school when I was a, a they tried to expel me at 16, but they told me I was making the school so much money. So they delayed it until I was 17. We're going to have to pick into that. What, sure. did, you, what did you do? And how were you making the school money? I'd, I'd done all the deals for all of our vending machines in the school, but I was also running all the school trips and um, all of the school's events for six formers. So I was controlling the flow of money. Right. And so Mr. Thomas gave me the expulsion form when I was 16. And then the person, the guy above him called Mr. Sprinkle ripped it up and uh, and said, we're not going to expel you. You make the school too much. You're my little Harry Potter. You make the t- school too much money. Um, and then they eventually expelled me in the last week of school. But <laughs> it was an attendance issue I had. My attitude's always been fine. I'm not the type to swear at teachers and throw chairs. It's just getting there and going to classes and doing homework was just too much of a challenge for me. That's, that's interesting. So that sort of uh, pr- the process of learning in that way, it's not really the thing for everybody, right? I've, I've a bunch of friends who just don't learn in that yeah, function. I fucking hate it. <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't sit in a room and listen to theoretical like, stuff for an hour. I will, I will sleep, like, protest sleep. My body shuts down. It's, I can't help that. And um, the same happened. So I went off to university at 18 and thought, you know, this is going to be different. I get to do one topic, which I love, which is business. Went to the lecture, sat at the back, fell asleep, walked out of lecture, dropped out of uni. Wow. And that was the only experience I had of university when I, that sleeping in that lecture and then going and dropping out immediately. And I I decided, because I looked around the lecture room and I realized that all of these people, none of them really wanted to be here. I went to not the best university. I won't say which one because... People might be offended, man met. But um, <laughs> I, I looked over and this girl was pissed next to me and she had her head on the table. And I thought, this is just like, this is just like school again. This guy's talking, making analogies with a box and love. I'm pretty sure I'm in the wrong room. So that was my last day at uni. Yeah, well, so mm. maybe roll back slightly because I'm sure. fascinated by the, um, the the vending machine part of this. Like, t- tell us that story because that sounds like quite an interesting way to uh, sort of get into your psyche a little bit. Yeah, like so I was sat in the common room in our school and the head people, um, like the head girl, the head boy, it was their job to pick vending machines from these catalogs. And I, was, I remember it so vividly. They were sat in front of me, Carly Stokes, and she was going through this catalogue looking at vending machines, and they cost like £3,000. And I'm thinking, why would we pay for vending machines when we have 2,000 customers, students, in the school? Surely the vending machine company should be paying us, or we should be making money from these people, or something. So I went to the computer room at period two, which is break time, and I just I sent five emails to the first five companies that came up on Google in Plymouth, um, by period four, they pulled me out of my lesson and said, someone's here to see you. No, I didn't check my, I hadn't checked my email yet. And it was a, a guy, just so happened that one of my emails went to a guy who used to go to our school, who's now the CEO of the biggest vending machine company in the area, and he was looking to pay the school back. Mm. So they ended up fitting vending machines, and um, our school, school got 20%, got the machines for free, mm-hmm. and 20% of all the revenue from the machines. Wow. Um, 
That's so it was good. It's a good deal. Bit of, yeah, bit of, bit of a deal to sort of start that going then. So uh, yeah. I feel like we're kind of getting through a bunch of personal vendettas here for you at high school, which is good fun. So is, is there anybody at university you want to call out now as well? I like, just, I you never know. There might be a banker right now. We can get them. So you know what? I just wasn't there long enough. <laughs> and it's it's weird thing with my school and with university because they both asked me to come back and be ambassadors and yeah. speak. And I was like, I was at you know, and met for a day. And they've asked me to speak like as some alumni. And then I, 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 my school kicked me out and I've been back twice to speak to the students for GCSEs and A-level like award days. I don't know. It's all a bit fraudulent. <laughs> well, it's, but it's interesting though, isn't it? Because again, it's different people learn in so dramatically different ways. And actually, mm. if you didn't have that experience in that classroom where you were like, this is mm. not for me and I need this other route, then actually, mm. I guess you wouldn't be the CEO of the company that you are today. So mm. it's like, like, how did you get from there to here? Because you've gone from, do you know what, fuck it, I'm out of university, I'm going to go and do my own thing. Mm. How have you got to being the CEO of, of your company? See, this is the thing. I, often people think if you're bad in school, that means you're lazy. And it just couldn't be further from the truth. I was, you know, everybody's lazy when it comes to doing shit you hate. Mm. Um, but when it comes to doing things you love and uh, doing things in the way that engages your sets, your soul or whatever alike, um, very few people are lazy. So I, whenever, it, when, it, when it came to business in my school and starting businesses and running the school trips and organizing school trips to Thought Park and doing all the consent forms and collecting all the money and all those things, I would, I would do it till 4am in the morning. I just didn't want to push the plastic baby around school for health and social care class and change it <laughs> snappy. And I didn't like listening to, like, I wasn't that interested in like, you know, things like maths. I, I know it's important, but I wasn't interested. So um, when it when I dropped out, I spent the next, you know, 12 months aggressively pursuing my business ideas. And I would work harder than anybody on earth. And I still do today because I love it. You know, I love business and I love building things. Mm. And so although everybody wrote me off because the characteristics or the behavior that I demonstrated is usually conducive with failures and, I don't know, people that become drug dealers or whatever, um, I was just misunderstood and I think a lot of people are. And um, so at the moment I'm, I'm on a bit of a, a mission to, 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 to correct the education system, I think. Okay. And, and how are you sort of looking at that? Because that, that sounds like a, like we, we, there's probably about four hours we can talk about that one. I'm yeah, sure. I'm going to keep it super brief and I've got to keep it slightly cryptic. I'm, and my brand manager's in the corner and she might kill me for the saying this, but I'm All not right. going to violate any NDAs. But I'm currently doing a TV show with one of the number one channels in this country, which I've been shooting for 12 days straight. And it directly, and it'll be on nine o'clock prime time for one hour. And it directly highlights everything I've just described. Fantastic. The second thing is I started a foundation called Rewrite Foundation, where I go to disadvantaged schools and I speak to the kids. And my whole agenda there is to help rewrite the stories that institutions or your parents might have told you that stand to uh, prevent you from reaching your full potential. Okay. Because there's a, I'm scared of the fact that there's a huge chance I could have believed some of these stories. The story is that people that get A's are rich and happy. B's, meh, a little bit less. D's, uh, E's, you're fucked. Hmm. Like that's the untold story of school that comes from your parents and institutions and teachers. And I just don't want people to believe that story because if you believe it, you become it. 
And that's the real danger. It's not the not the bad grade. It's letting the bad grade get to you. So completely. And and I I really believe in the thing that you're saying though, because it's about finding the thing that you're passionate about and making the effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have a similar story. If I'm honest with you, I actually mm-hmm. didn't. So I I stuck in university, but I found the thing that I was passionate about. Mm-hmm. I didn't actually try until I got to university. And actually finding that thing that you're really passionate about makes work not work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's an element there of it's not just the receptacle, as in the student, but actually the teacher. You know. Mm-hmm. If the teacher is teaching you incorrectly, you're never going to learn, right? 100%. So I think we found common ground, which is good, which is nice. But um, so I I think that probably brings us to about now as well. So tell me Mm -hmm. more about social chain. What do you guys do? Yeah. So um, take take one step back just so I can tee this up properly. But dropped out 18, did a business for three years, which was kind of like a social network in trying to understand how to market that business Mm. with no money. I was forced to do things in a very hacky way. And that's how Social Chain was born. Through the desire, I have, I have no money, but I need millions of people to come to a website. How do I do that? Social media, after lots of trial and error, became the answer. And building, we ended up building these enormous communities online to the point where we could get millions of people to download something in a day just by all of our channels talking about it at once. Mm-hmm. And um, when I was 21 years old, I dropped out. I quit that company. I'm very good at quitting. I quit my company out the blue, big glass of wine, emailed the investors, five of them. And some of them had built the biggest social networks in the world, like Friends United. Um, and I told them that I believed in social media more than I believed in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. Next year, I went around the world. Um, Michael Birch, who made Bebo back in the day, yeah. and, and I think he went on to invest in Pinterest, invited me out to Silicon Valley. I think I called Sean to help bring Bebo back when I was 21. And in that, in my 21st year, I was a consultant for nine companies at the same time all around the world. So we were just traveling for the whole year, t- living on couches and Airbnbs. And then one of my clients turned around and said, do you want to turn this thing you've been doing for us into a business? It was actually a startup in London that raised 20 million. Uh, we were sleeping on their sofa, helping the market. They gave us a check for 300 grand. Mm. Um, we took it to the bank. That was four years ago, almost to the day. Like, we took that check to the bank and then we said, okay, let's start a company called Social Chain, which is exactly what we were doing for these clients mixed with this big reach we had in the social mm. media pages. So Social Chain Group became a marketing agency, which is a completely separate business with different MDs and different offices and Media Chain, the media owner, which owns hundreds of the world's largest social media channels across mm. all platforms. Yeah. Uh, and that's the business that I run, marketing and media business. So, wow. yeah. Busy boy. Hence, hence yeah. the why you're tired and moving yeah, around. Always and, tired. Yeah. Always tired, but always very happy. Yeah. And optimistic. So when, when you say social, what do you mean? Because actually, like, the, the hard thing, I guess, with social media and and uh, and really, like, what we've done with 11FS, we, mm-hmm. our only distribution channel is, is through social. We don't mm-hmm. do anything else other than that in terms of where we're at. But when you say social to people, people think various different things in terms of what they're doing. And the difficulty is, is everybody has a Facebook page or a Twitter page. So everybody thinks they're an expert at social media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you, how do, what's your sort of thesis around social? How do you think people do it better than others? Um, good question. I think social chain have succeeded because we never, ever wanted to or intended to start a marketing agency Mm. ever. The story of how social chain came together is I was, I was, I had pages because I did wall park and I was trying to figure out how to get free traffic to my website. I then went around the country in 2011 and met every young person I could that had built big social media pages in their bedroom. 40 of them. These are kids in their bedroom. Nick, was 18 years old at Loughborough, started tweeting. Fast forward six years, he's got 15 million followers and the page is called Sporf. Wow. Then Hannah Anderson, 
off to be a school teacher, starts off making content around the things she loves, Harry Potter, builds the biggest Harry Potter page in the world. Nice. The, that story, Connor sat in his bedroom, loves food, makes a page called Love Food. It's got 10 million followers. Rounded up 40 people like that. We all came together. And that authenticity, I think, to answer your question, is what made Social Chain win. We are just a bunch of kids that were playing around with social media, hacking it, and brands came to us. We never ever made a business plan. Mm. The God's honest truth on my mother's life is Social Chain's business plan is written on the back of a napkin, and that napkin is photocopied, and it's it's in our official like company filings and in our shareholder documents. This photocopy of a napkin in um in uh, in our in our old co-working space in London from four years ago. So it was never a plan. And, and I think that speaks to why it's worked and why people, some people went on social media because of that authenticity. Yeah. Well, I, I guess it's it's sort of back to that, you, you're doing something you love, right? Mm-hmm. So, but I guess in all of those cases, in terms of all of the people who uh, are working with you now in, in, in mm-hmm. that space, then they're passionate about the content that mm-hmm. they're delivering. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we found with this podcast, we started the podcast in the first place because actually we're in a situation where every other thing in fintech or financial services just bought the hell out of us, quite frankly. So you build something for you and actually you're in a situation where you just find there's a lot of other people like you, which 100%. is awesome. That's exactly the case. Um, all of our channels and all of our audiences have come from someone doing something that they just loved without the expectation of growing a big audience or making money. And that was, that's secondary. And and how, how do you find the difference there between, because there's a lot of big brands that are trying to get into to social, you know, you yeah. see really big organizations. We, we've seen in financial services, we've seen big banks trying to get into social media, but mm. It's sort of it, it feels like that sort of dad at the disco a little bit you know there's yeah. that sort of jankiness to the to the moves in terms of what's going yeah. on and just not that authenticity mm-hmm. I guess how would you see some of these big organizations being able to do it with a authentic voice yeah so what you described there is what we might refer to as like cool dad syndrome mm. where you've got um I'm a, I'm a dad so I'm like I'm in that cool dad territory now you see so or at least I like to believe I am you're 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 a dad until you try and you, you try and be like the sun, right. you know, and try okay. and connect with the sun's like culture and their terminology and those kinds of things. That's the when you you get diagnosed with called dad syndrome. Right. So um, it's cool to just be a dad, yeah. you know. But like in the case of like financial services and banking, if a bank starts saying like in their communications to its customers like YOLO and uh, other sort of you know colloquial terms that young people might might use, then then it's just not. It violates this like this like level of like I guess trust and believability and all these things. And in an age we we live in the age of authenticity. We live in an age where um, skepticism and trust around banks and CEOs and social media companies and everything is at an all time low. Mm-hmm. So the people that are winning are the people that are just overly transparent. And there are great examples. I remember there's one CEO. I think he's the the CEO of Everlane. Um, Evelyn, I can't remember the name of the company, but he he runs a fashion company. And when their suppliers' costs drop, so when they buy cashmere cheaper from their suppliers, mm. he will write a letter on their social media channel saying, the price we pay for cashmere has dropped. So the right thing to do would be to make sure that the price drops for the customer. Mm-hmm. And that over-transparency is a thing that is building brand love in a world where we have no, uh, no trust yeah. for corporations and stuff. And how uh, that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? Because 
that transparency really shows the real inner workings of what you're doing. And, yeah. I, and I think, you know, we probably both are aware that most big organizations are marketing on a, a vision of what they want to be rather than actually what they are. So, like, how do you manage that tension? How do you how do you create not just a persona, but reflect the reality of what it, like, it means they have to actually do it, right? Yeah. Do you know, I, I've been through a similar thing in my own company where, um, I realized that in order to make sure people stay close to us and our vision and our values and where we want to go with this company as we grow, I have to become more transparent. Mm. The, the one thing that stands to hurt us the most in terms of our, like, our team's engagement with our vision is if they don't feel connected to it. Yeah. And the, and the, the number one reason why they don't, they won't feel connected to it is because they're kind of left in the dark. Mm. And so um, I, a couple of months ago, I started writing these emails, which are called full disclosure. And I send them every 14 days and I try and just send everything, mm. everything, the good, the bad, the things we're trying to improve on. And um, I think it does two things. It keeps people informed, but it sends a message to them that I, that we, we all, we're all on the same playing field here. Mm. We all know everything. There's yeah. no secrets. And even if they don't read it, the fact that I sent it and it's called full disclosure uh, shows that I I, I want to break down that separation, you know? Mm, yeah, tra transparency and communication is definitely a, a, mm. a big thing there, isn't it? And like say, most of the time in instances like that, like you say, it's it's somebody feeling like they don't know something, even if there's not something to know, right? Sure, exactly. Um, how are you seeing, I guess, the, the sort of trend more and more away from, you know, social media is not now just a, you know, here's a thing, post a thing. Mm -hmm. It's moving much more to that engagement around the community. So, mm -hmm. you know, video is obviously much, much more of a thing than it was even sure. three or four years ago. And, you know, we've seen Instagram live and were Periscope's kind of making a bit of a resurgence in mm -hmm. terms of the, the numbers and the engagement. Uh, you know, video, it's hard to be an authentic when your face and your mouth are there and everybody's got to like literally believe the thing you're saying mm -hmm. rather than it just being an email that your PR person can write. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is this a dynamic or a skill set that you think big organizations are really kind of equipped to find? With, with in terms of video in particular? Yeah, I think video, the transparency around video is is a hard one because it, it, it just breaks that barrier, bullshit barrier down straight away because mm -hmm. there's no, nobody's moving your mouth for you when sure. it's it. Whereas actually if yeah. it's a, a PR release, then actually, you know, such and such CEO has sure. probably never seen that thing before, sure. right? No, yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. In fact, that's um, a really good suggestion. A few people have said to me that they want that, they think I should record the full disclosure email and post it into our internal like company group. Sure. So, and I completely get why, because you get to see the, the, the like facial expression and there's the story therefore and the, the emotion of it all becomes uh, uh, deeper. So, Well, anytime I ever try and sit down and write anything, I can't do it. Like my, my thing, I, I can, I'm, I'm okay at speaking, but writing and, and uh, if I have to read a bunch of content, it takes me forever. If I have to write a bunch of things, my spelling and grammar is the worst thing in the whole world. But actually just talking, I can just do that and I will probably not even remember what I've said. Yeah. Um, but it just comes, and I think that authenticity comes through because actually you're, you're speaking from the heart. Yeah. Time you're yeah. unscripted in the moment. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, and I think the thing is for, for what we do in financial services, actually, you know, a, a real 
you know, big CEO will be so constrained by actually what they can and can't say that the thing that they probably want to say is not the thing that they know that they can say because the shareholders are going to, you know, mm-hmm. light the uh, the torches and be uh, sort of have their pitchforks outside the organization pretty quickly. But, exactly. Yeah. So where do you see sort of social going? Obviously, this is a, a, a space that you're at the, uh, the sort of epicenter of in terms of things that are happening. But mm-hmm. how do you see this kind of progressing? Interesting. Um, a lot of it, when I think about predictions for social media, I always think about the hardware and sort of technological advancements that enable new things. So I just, I think all of the the developments of social media have predominantly been linked to some kind of tech uh, technological advancement. So even stories, this is just, this is just a status update. 10 years ago, we used to write status updates and, and read status updates because 4G internet wasn't that good. So I couldn't record a video and download a video to see my friend's status updates. Um, and now I can. So stories was came at the moment when mobile internet and the palm of our hands got so good. Um, and now Facebook stole that and put it everywhere. So when I when I try and think about what the future looks like, I just try and understand. And I think the same for podcasting. Mm. I think the reason why, uh, like let's call it like digital audio, um, murdered radio and is murdering radio in my opinion um is again because of how good our internet is in the palm of our hand and we can download hour-long audio files on the go um and also because it's kind of been democratized with all these social platforms and podcasting and spotify and soundcloud but so when i think about the future i just try and understand how tech's changing and i think one of the big bets i have for the next i'd say five to ten years is on wearable ar I think that's going to cause the next major shift. I think we had a move from desktop to mobile phone. And then we had we went from mobile phones to smartphones, right? So we went from like, let's say, old massive computers to Windows and Macs. And then we went from the Nokias and the Blackberries to the iPhones and the Samsungs. And Apple and Google now are like running the show there. And I think the next thing in the S-curve is wearable AR. Mm. And it's just about just about getting real great practical applications that will make us all will make Jenny 14-year-old Jenny in her bedroom need it mm. um and making it accessible, cheap and um not not so intrusive. Yeah. Uh, and I think I think that'll cause the next revolution. And with mm. wearable AR, you've got a whole new world of social networking. Yeah. Um, so I think that's what I'm waiting for. It, it's um, amazing that world is not a million miles away, is it? And it's not actually, a million miles away, no. And the, the impact from a humanity perspective could be so fascinating, I think, yeah. as well. Because, you know, I, the facts that I would have needed to know 25, 35 years ago that mm-hmm. are just at the fingertips of you now, the fact that we have Google, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, exactly. the arguments that are, are kind of uh, dissipated in 50 seconds because you yeah. Google who that guy was yeah. in the movie, right? <laughs> um, so, but being in that situation where that can be for, you know, real practical things, just mm-hmm. walking around everyday life to mm-hmm. understand where things are or what that is, or mm-hmm. to, you know, with augmented reality, the, the voice translation things that mm-hmm. are happening, like it kind of wouldn't matter if I was French and you were English and mm-hmm. actually we were having this conversation in three, four, you know, maybe less years time. Exactly. I actually spoke to my uh, fr- friend of mine, a guy called Benedict Evans, okay. who I uh, follow on Twitter and he's, he works uh, in Silicon Valley and writes a lot about these things. And I actually tweeted him, I think it was on Friday saying, how long do you reckon until we've got contact lenses that will deliver um, enough sort of functionality to, to be like social networking AR contact lenses. And he thinks it'll be about 10 years. 
Wow. That was so that we, you know, you could literally put a contact lens in. You could navigate your whole life, Facebook, your social apps, your friends, text, people call, mm. audio, all these things from a contact lens. And I am inclined to believe it. With a lot of other things, I've not really bought into it. With mm. even with like virtual reality and a lot of these predictions, I've never really bought into it. But um That sounds like a pretty terrifying Black Mirror episode I think I've seen at it some does, point. But yeah, uh, like, no, that, that yeah. can go pretty wrong pretty badly based on that episode. I mean, even like look at mobile phones, a lot of things went wrong with that and computers, a lot of things went wrong with that. And there's always gonna be like bad actors and you know, the, we just gotta hope that the the good actors are stronger and better. Um yeah, but I to answer your question, I think all of the, when we think about predicting social media and where it's going in the future, it will be based on the fact that wearable AR will disrupt the mobile phone. Mm. We have completely plateaued in terms of innovation for the smartphone. I don't care, Samsung, if you're going to make it foldable. Like, save, spare me. Oh, you're going to make it thinner. Oh, fuck. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 the curve from the first Nokia brick phone to where we are now is huge. Mm. But in the last three, five, and, I mean, you've only got to look at Apple's revenue figures recently for, for iPhones. We, we've plateaued with innovation in the mobile space. So. Yeah. yeah, that cycle's definitely getting longer and there's no real massive upgrade reason, mm -hmm. isn't there? So mm -hmm. it's slightly bigger, it's slightly smaller, it's not that helpful, is it? I'm sat here like a hypocrite with my brand new iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. sometimes a shiny aluminium yeah. thing Still is good. It gets but me when that Johnny Ives comes on and starts talking like an artist. But Indeed. I wonder if a robot will be driving us to work in the future. They say robots could become more intelligent than humans, which can only be a good thing, right? Stephen Hawking said the rise of robots could be disastrous for mankind. Well, I'm looking forward to robots doing the hard parts of my job. If they're smarter than you, they might kick you out of your job. Artificial intelligence. Innovation or invasion. Don't settle for black or white. For the full perspective, turn to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com forward slash subscribe today. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Um, so I guess seven years, that sounds like uh, you've folded maybe you know, 40, 50 years of experience into seven years in terms of what you've been doing, which is, I, I guess, uh, you know, accelerated learning is always good, but yeah. what would you go back and tell yourself at the beginning of this journey that you've learned? Or, you know, has the journey been the, uh, the, the sort of benefit, really? The thing that always pops into my mind instantly when, when I'm asked uh, questions on, in, of that type is just about the importance of people. I think once upon a time when I was 18, I thought that, I would progress fastest in my career because I learned a bunch of stuff and I built a bunch of experience. And really the thing that took me from uh, there being two of us uh, when we were 21 to 270 full-time members of the team across five offices now isn't really anything that I learned. It's a couple of people we hired 
that had a that knew a bunch of shit that I knew nothing about that um, took us from A to B. And I can literally, I, and this is why I'm so obsessed about, I ref, refer to our company and all companies as really just recruitment businesses. Mm. Like, and I tried to, I said that to some of my senior directors at the start of this year. I was like, from now on, let's just think of ourselves as a recruitment business because there are six people in, in our company that I can say took us from social chain 1.0 to social chain 4.0, which yeah. is like from making... Uh, you know, a loss and not very much money to making over 30 million in the last calendar year in revenue, just for the media marketing business. The group will do about 200 million, wow. but the media marketing business will do about 30 globally. And it's six, I could literally think it's six people. Yeah. So I'm like, where's number fucking seven? <laughs> like, that's what keeps me up at night, yeah. you know? Um, it's amazing though, uh, like that as a uh, understanding the things that you're not good at, mm -hmm like admitting that yeah, Christ, yeah. and then recruiting the people to like fill those gaps like as and you say trusting them yeah but that's that's what it is you know we we actually spent a bunch of time looking from an 11 FS's perspective we we looked at like what is our strategy you know it's like fintech and you know banky stuff and actually when you boil it down exactly like you say like our strategy right now is just about unleashing talent mm -hmm. and actually if you get that right then actually everything else is just try and get out of the way as much as possible mm -hmm. right uh, especially as the CEO, you know, yeah. really it's, uh, you know, you work for them rather than they work for you, right? 100%. And I think there's two, especially as a young CEO, you have, a, you have there's a couple of things which are unique to being a young CEO. Mm. The first one is being insecure. <laughs> and this is what all of my friends who have started young media marketing companies have at times, not all of them actually, I'd say about 50% have failed at is they've been so insecure that the thought of someone coming in that is senior and knows more threatens their like sense of leadership yeah. and stuff. And uh, I got to admit, I had that. I had that when we started. I hired a bunch of kids, young people, because I didn't, I didn't understand how I would manage someone that was 45 when I was 20. But uh, I think in our second year, I quickly got rid of that. And um, now I'm all for people that are so much better than me. I know what I'm bad at most things. And um, I try and spend as much as my, of my time as I possibly can on the things that I think I'm uniquely positioned or uniquely talented at. Hmm. And, uh, and that's how great companies work. It's a, by definition, just a group of people, right? Company, so. Indeed. Yeah, yeah no, I, com I completely subscribe to that. Thanks so much for no coming worries. in. Fascinating to talk to you. Um, there's a lot of sort of financial services decision makers who sort of listen to this. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, people in fintech companies, people in sure. banks. What would be the thing that you could do for them? What would they call uh, you for? If you're trying to understand how to use social media to um, earn a greater share of young people's, and when I say young people, I mean between the age of like, I mean, not even young people, anybody that uses social media. So we could go from, you know, 16 to four, 45, 50. Um, if you're trying to earn a greater share of their lives, then I genuinely, and you're not looking just to tick a box to make your CEO happy or whatever. Um, and you're looking to do stuff that's uh, interesting, innovative, take a risk and maybe be a bit scared. Then social chain is the, the email for you to contact. If you're looking to just to do social media because someone's told you you have to do it, then there's loads of other companies out there. But uh, <laughs> we're, 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 you know, we're, we're here to have fun and, and, keep brands at the forefront of what's possible and that's what keeps the fire in our bellies so yeah fantastic well thanks very much for coming in thanks for really appreciate the time thank you for your time um, thanks for listening guys